Hello, Fellowship family. It's great to have you here on this beautiful weekend in just about March. It's good to have you. And we're gonna, uh, before I get into the word, I kind of wanted to give you an update on our expansion project that's happening right next door to us. Uh, I want to talk to you about the resources for it and also the time frame for it to open. First uh, are the resources. And I want to say thank you for your continued giving. And uh, many of you, sacrificial, let there be light, sacrificial giving um, to, to help, us, help us provide space for more people. Wow. I can now see that there's actually people here. How about that? Um, but uh, we've, been, we've been talking through that as we've been uh, doing the Finish It campaign. Um, God is raising the resources for us to continue to build and and open this new building up. It's going to be great. I don't know if you've ever built a house or anything like that, but I'm always like, when are we going to get in? How can I get in? This is going to be great. We're going to open up for more more people and our nursery is not going to be cramped anymore. That nursery is going to be great and we're going to open up this whole building for children's ministries. It's going to turn into our family ministries building. And so we're really excited about it and no one more than me wants to get into it as soon as possible. Uh, I see the realities each weekend. We had uh, put the goal of getting in on Easter, and this week we were told that can't happen. Uh, we're just not going to make it. Uh, and uh, we, we've been pushing hard. Our contractors, our subcontractors, we've been working them to the bone. And uh, as we looked at our current realities this week, although I was bummed about it, we was told we just can't do Easter. We can't move in on Easter. So we're shooting right now. Right now, we're pretty pretty sure we can get in early May, and that is our date. And so uh, as, as we look at that, don't be discouraged, church. In, in six months, we're not even going to remember this. We're going to be in a great new building, and God is going to continue to entrust people to us. What does this mean for Easter? Well, come on, people. Smile on your brother. Try to love one another right now. We're going to get, we're going to be close this Easter, but we're going to have seven services. And around the fifth one, I'll have an IV in me while I preach, but I am really excited about it. Our theme this, this Easter is, uh, Jesus, the life, a life we need to find and a life we need to follow. And so we still want you to invite your friends and family. Easter is an easy time to invite your people who aren't connected to a church to, uh, come and hear that that uh, true reality of the resurrection of Jesus. We want to celebrate that. And in order to uh, you know, have you invite your friends and family, we're going to have seven services. Two on Friday night. Uh, on Friday night, 5.30 and 7 o'clock p.m. On Saturday, same exact times that we already have at 5 and 6.45. And then at Sunday, we're going to have a 7.30 a.m. sunrise service. Amen? Amen? Okay, that just told me you'll all be there. Good. <laughs> I'll serve you donuts if you come to that because I will bribe whatever whoever I can to get them here at 7:30. It'll be a great time that morning and then our two services just like regular 9:15 and 11. And so with that we believe you can invite even more people than you invited last year when we were at TPAC, but we're going to be that whole weekend. So we're going to have fun this Easter, right? And you guys have always responded. I remember just this Christmas Eve, you you responded and pretty much all the services were level, which was awesome. You guys really responded to that. So 
If you haven't planned Easter, which probably you haven't done that. I'm just seeing people usually plan Easter the week of, but we're almost a month away. Um, if you haven't thought of Easter yet, think of Friday or Saturday night um, to target for that, just so we can make room for as many people as possible on that Sunday. Hey, thanks for letting me share that. It's a burden off my chest. But um, you guys are an awesome family. It's a blessing to be a pastor here. It's a blessing to lead and uh, to, to seek all that God has for us. God is changing all of us, isn't he? That's what we talked about last week when we were in the city of Philippi with Paul. We're seeing that same Jesus <clears throat> changing, remaking, redeeming people. Male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, all are one in Christ. Christ has brought us all together. And that's a mission that's made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's go to that now. Go back to that story as we look at now the fullness of the gospel. The fullness of the gospel, which we're going to learn about in the city of Athens. Let me bring you back up to speed with this story, because it's a story told to us by Luke in the book of Acts. Excuse me. This is the world that they were called to take the gospel and to be a witness from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. On Paul's second missionary journey, we see him go to present-day Turkey and go right through those cities that he had already been to and established church and followed up with them on that the gospel is the gospel of grace. It's not by works. You come to Jesus and you receive what he's done for you. You don't try to impress him with what you've done for him. And that's the gospel. And it moved and took root. They went to Troas and then they sailed across to Neapolis and then to Philippi. And then it says that they they traveled on from Philippi to Amphipolis. How about that for a name? I guess if you came from that city, you were an amphibian. Sorry. A bad, bad humor, Bible humor, but nonetheless, humor. Okay, and then on to Apollonia. We're not told what happens there, although they went because they were targeted on a city called Thessalonica. And it was here that Paul was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews. Hey, Jesus really is. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of everything the prophets said the Messiah would be. Come to Jesus. Trust in him. He lived, died, was resurrected for you. Some believed, some didn't. This is what they called Paul. This is where Paul had this reputation. He said in Acts 17, verse 6, if you have your Bibles there, it says, these men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. They had that reputation. And that's what the gospel will do in our lives. It will come and it will confront the places we take it. It it actually confronts my life with a self-centered you know, me world and kind of universe that I operate under, how I'm doing what I want. And the gospel will say, no, it's not about you. It's about God. It's about Jesus. It's about what he's about. It's about his glory, not your own. And so um, they chased him out of out of Thessalonica. So they traveled over to Berea. And at Berea, it was interesting how how Luke describes the Jews in Berea where Paul started to preach the gospel. Look what it says. Verse 11 says they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What a great trait of a church to actually not just have someone feed the scriptures to you, but actually open up the scriptures and get into the scriptures and seek God in the scriptures. 
Any of you come from a Berean background? Okay. Well, how about that? With the thousands of people we've had this week, and no one has come from a Berean background. Well, the Berean background, which is actually a denomination, prides themselves on getting into the scriptures, of having people teach the scriptures, but mostly having people go and study the scriptures when they're away from the churches. Bible's our middle name, Fellowship Bible Church. And so we also would call you to the same practice of receiving the word with eagerness, examining examining the scriptures daily, not just taking my word for it, not being spoon-fed, but actually feeding yourself in the scriptures. That's a great value to have as a follower of Jesus. Problem in Berea is that people from Thessalonica who were dissatisfied with Paul and, and uh, didn't want the gospel came and stirred up dissension. And so he literally had to separate from Timothy and Silas, and he traveled all the way to Athens. Now, that wasn't his route. I just really struggle with line art. So give me grace today. It looks more cartoonish. Sorry about that. Let's just get to Athens, okay? That's where he was. And here's a picture of the ruins in Athens. Up on top there is the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill. This is kind of past the, the heyday of Athens. It was part of the, it was the center of the Greek culture. But remember, Alexander the Great was several hundred years after or before this thing happened, before Paul went. And so Rome was the dominant party. This was the empire that was defeated by the Rome. But the Greek culture still stayed in the Roman culture. That's why the New Testament was written in Greek, because that was the common language of the world at that time, much like English is today. And so Paul went there, and it's interesting what he saw. Let's take a look at that. Turn with me to verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within in him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I want to talk to you about the fullness of the gospel in action and then in faith. For you to speak about something, you have to know something about the gospel and you have to know something about God. And here what we're seeing is Paul speaking, seeing him acting, but he acted because he had a faith that was fully on with God. Let's talk about his action, then we'll talk about his faith. When Paul came to Athens, he saw something with his eyes. And that's what the fullness of the gospel helps you do. It opens your eyes to see what God sees. Look at that. He, he saw that the city was full of idols. When you tour a place, how do you look at it? Typically, when I tour a place, I look at, wow, what was cool about this place? Look at that. I was in Dubai recently, and I went. The big thing in Dubai is the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world. So I'm like, oh, when I see this building. And I had a friend there. He took us all the way up to the 126th floor in about one minute. That elevator goes from zero to 126 stars. And you, you actually get to the top like this, but no, actually, you did. It barely felt it. But uh, you got up to the top and you were 126 floors. Actually, it goes over 160 floors high. 
But you see that when you see a city, those kind of things, they sparkle. And Paul could have seen this thing was made out of gold. This made out of silver. This was beautiful marble. This was that white stone marble or, or granite from the Roman Empire that he could have, you know, remarked on. But what does he see? He sees that the whole city was full of idols. Actually, that Greek word for full is literally swamped. It was swamped with idols. That was the comment about Athens from the historians is there were more gods than there were people in the city. He was literally tripping over them. Matter of fact, he even saw that there was one, uh, uh, an image or a, an idol to the god, the unknown god. In other words, just in case we forgot the one we don't know, that's a him. And so Paul remarked about that. You even have one for someone you don't even know. You haven't even figured out yet. What do your eyes see when you look at your city? What do your eyes see when they look at your life? Are you able to pick out the idols in your life to identify them? The more I follow Jesus and the more my eyes are fixed on Jesus, the more my eyes can see idols. Just recently, as I was in India, beautiful country with a great, a great culture, um, I was driving in our taxi and our taxi driver had his idols on his dashboard. And I love how he's got the matchbox car there because one of those gods, uh, by the way, Hinduism has over a million gods, a million gods. And if you are a family there, you have your family gods. You're in, in calves kind of ancestry right there with on, on your kind of the worship of, of the gods that you bow down to. Right in the middle of a street of crazy traffic. You guys don't know traffic till you've been to India. Um, but, but, you will see someone have a bowing down to their idol right in the middle of the street. Here, one of these gods was the god who would protect that person from the evil gods. And the other god would help that person be good and have good things happen to them, kind of like a good luck charm. And as I looked at that, I realized, wow, if I didn't have Jesus... And I had to drive in this traffic. I'd probably have gods like this on my dashboard too. <laughs> I mean, it's just one of those cultures that's just overwhelming with over like 1.4 billion people and all have their own gods. It it's, was um, something just to observe that. When Paul saw it, he just said, that's, that's a god. That's a god. And, he, and it moved not just his eyes to see something, but his heart to feel something. And that's the second thing that we see him doing physically as actions is that his heart started feeling what God felt when he saw those idols. Its spirit was provoked within him. And again, that word is not he was ticked off. He was annoyed. He was angry, you know, when he got on the street corner with a sign or something like that. No, it, it actually moved him to go, boy, they're robbing God of his rightful glory. You see, with Paul... With Paul, Jesus was his greatest glory. Jesus was his greatest pleasure. Jesus was his greatest joy in life. It was in Jesus who was his, who is is the only one who could save. It was the only one who could satisfy him. And that change, it moved him to a heart of compassion, a heart of, of brokenness for the city of Athens. Are you broken by the idols you have? I mean, an actual emotional brokenness for things that you place in front of God. For good things that quickly can become God things 
when we spend more t- attention, time, and energy, and worry, and anxiety on them than we do on trusting them with God. We can do that. And Paul not only saw it, he felt it, and that moved him to do something about it. And that's what the fullness of the gospel does. It opens my mouth to speak what God speaks. And so look what he did. It says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I love this picture. Love this picture. Two places here are mentioned. One is the synagogue. What would be our synagogue? That would be this place, right? And each week we get, come together and we reason together. We reason about who God is. We reason together about who Christ is. We reason together of what, what's our call? What are we called to? And we're called to the gospel. But he didn't just stop Paul there. He also went outside into the marketplace. Where is your marketplace? Could be your school. It's your workplace. Could be your neighborhood. And he reasoned with people in a world full of other gods. He reasoned with them about who Jesus Christ is. Just looking at that, you think about um, just what you're willing to speak about in a culture that's swayed and moved by all the different idols that we have. But having a heart, seeing the fullness of, of the gospel in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, in the work of God and the power of God in our lives, moves us not only to see, but to feel and then to act. And so Paul was then invited to the Areopagus. And it was at this Areopagus that he gave a message. The message to read takes about two minutes. Uh, Luke records kind of the, the meat of the message. I'm sure it, it went longer than two minutes. I've been reading Paul now for a long time. He liked to go for hours. Us pastors are not known for brevity. But if you were to summarize, that's why we have notes, because you kind of read through your notes about what I take 30 minutes to explain. And that's what Luke is giving us. He's given us kind of the picture of what's the fullness of the gospel in a world that worships all the other idols. And he kind of shows us a picture of who God is amongst who the one true God is amongst all the other gods in this system called Athens. So let's take a look at it. Now, they called him up to the Areopagus in verse uh, 22. Uh, and he, he stands in the midst of the Areopagus and he says, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. (laughs) I like that start. Because it's kind of the understatement of the universe when he's tripping over all the gods in Athens. He goes, hey, people are spiritual around here, aren't they? Duh. Yeah, everyone's, everyone's seeking after. But you know what? He could have gone, hey, you stupid idiots. (laughs) And he wouldn't have had an audience, would he? So he joined his life with theirs by a connector. Hey, you guys are really religious around here. He connects with them. And then he says this. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. That's where he bases this whole message off of. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He goes, you know that one? You go by it every day. It's that altar to the unknown God, just in case we forgot someone. Well, let me tell you about the God who's made himself known to you already. And he just starts describing who God is. 
And he spoke to uh, key people there on that Areopagus, two major philosophical people that were there. One were the Epicureans, and the Epicureans were kind of interesting uh, people. They were the they were the philosophers of the garden. And they saw life through the lens of pleasure. If it felt good, it must be good. I think this is where the term, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right, was fashioned. <laughs> Maybe not. But they viewed the gods to be remote and distant from their daily lives. And they lived, as they, as they lived in a broken life, they tried to escape the realities through pleasure. They didn't believe there was life after death. They said today, you know, I think that's also where the term, we want to party like it's 1999. Uh, no, that's another one that didn't happen there. But they, they thought that this life is all you have. So live it to its fullest because everything stops when you die. The other group called the Stoics, these group, they were actually named the philosophers of the porch, which that's stoia in Greek literally means those painted colonnades that you see around the Areopagus there. And they processed life as you get what you deserve. And you're dealt cards from the gods and you just got to, you just got to be able to handle things and, and be self-sufficient and, and be unmoved by pain and suffering. Resigned to the life you get from the gods. After I preached this message at the five o'clock service last night, someone gave me a little card and he said, um, the Epicureans equals Tigger and the Stoics equals Eeyore. Okay, I guess we could summarize it like that if we were talking to five-year-olds, but we're not. <laughs> so uh, these two groups Paul was uh, spoke to, and they asked him a question. They, they actually, after he presented that to him, they said, what does this babbler have to say? And they called him a, a, a non-original thinker, which I don't know if you've ever spoken to the philosophical type. But they like the old way of thinking. They like the ancient things and preserving the ancient thought. There's nothing new under the sun. And so Paul was giving the gospel, something newly given by Jesus Christ. And they said, no, I I don't know. And others said, let's hear more of him. So when they invite him up to the Areopagus and they, they ask him to share this God who he's talking about. I like what John Stott says about what he preaches. And he says this for a current day application of it. He said, many people are rejecting our gospel today, not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. People are looking for an integrated worldview, which makes sense of all their experience. And we learn from Paul that we cannot preach the gospel of Jesus without the doctrine of God or the cross without creation or salvation without judgment. Today's world needs a bigger gospel, a full gospel of the scriptures. What Paul later in Ephesus was to call that whole purpose of God. And we'll talk about Ephesus next week. So let's get into that. Let's get into this message. And first of all, uh, this gospel of faith, uh, Paul's going to talk about God as the creator of all. Look at how he introduces God in verse 24. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it, Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. Paul kind of confronts that whole picture of idolatry, the worship of other gods, by saying, look, those are all things that you've fashioned. Those are things that you've made. Have you ever considered that the one true God made you? 
He's the one who creator, created you. And you're selling him short. You're robbing him of his glory when you worship the creation over the creator. We've put the cart before the horse when we do that. And that's exactly what idolatry does. It substitutes something that was made for the one who made it. And so that's the whole picture that he's calling them into. Uh, idols are attempts to form God. Paul is saying God formed us. Created things cannot stand before the creator of all things. Let's keep following him, though. Keep reading verse 25. He says the same one, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. When I was in Thailand one time, they had their altars around the hotel I was in, and they would come and they would give a daily sacrifice or an offering to their gods. And in some cases, it was help me have a good day. In others, it was keep this far from me, you know, keep the evil things from me. Uh, but I looked at each one of those offerings that they offered. Um, it's interesting. The God that was in front of it never came alive and ate the sacrifice. So ants were on those things. Or a bird would swoop down and grab a piece of fruit and fly away. And what, what it would be, it would be an attempt for them to kind of get the gods on the right side or to be on the right side, to kind of manipulate the gods so that They've done enough good things so that the gods won't get them. Or they've done enough good things so that the gods owe them something. And you know, we can do this too when we're works-based with our God, right? God, I went to church. I ought to get the promotion this week, right? Because you deserve, I deserve this. You owe it. God, I confess that sin. Well, I better do better on my test grade this week. I won't cheat anymore. Promise. After Monday, I won't cheat anymore. We make those we make those deals with God and we're trying to make him owe us something in life. And what what Paul is saying is you don't sustain God. He owes you nothing. We owe him everything. He doesn't depend on us. We depend on him. God's that sustainer of all. We don't impress him with our good works. We don't, you know, he doesn't love us more when we really just are good people and better people than we were the year before. He loves us because he's a loving God and he gives us grace, which is undeserved love. And then he continues. Look at verse 26. He shows God as the Lord of all. He says he's made him from one man, every nation to mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Here, that whole picture is that one man from every nation, words like mankind, the face of the earth. These are big, huge words. It's showing expanses, places that God is the Lord over all. Idolatry is kind of groping after the gods, kind of feeble attempts to feel their way to God. I've even heard it here in the U.S. I've heard, well, I don't care what the Bible says. I'd like to think that God is. Whoa, look out. We've just untethered from truth. And we then fashion him according to our imagination. And a God that you invent is really you. And we worship ourselves all the time. We tend to love ourselves more than we even love God. We're called to understand that Jesus is Lord over all. And to allow him to lead us. Paul continues. Look with me at verse 29. He's going to show him as the father of all. 
He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that we, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, the image formed by the art and imagination of man. The word that I want to pick up on here is offspring. Because this God who's the creator of all has also put his image into each one of us. Genesis chapter once is God, or chapter three, two, excuse me, says that God, excuse me, it's 127. I have gone to seminary. It says that God has created us in his image, male and female. He created us in his image. He's the father over all, but you know, we come to him through Christ. And in that way, we're redeemed by Christ into a family. God is calling us into a family Not that we derived, but that he derived. Not through our imagination, but by his sovereignty. And then the last thing that he calls us into is that God is the judge of all. The verse 31. He said, he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And that was Jesus, by the way. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Very, very uh, focused picture now moves in that guys, he says, God overlooked this as ignorance, but now he's really confronted us with the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus came the first time as a meek and lowly servant seeking to save those who were lost. He will come the second time a right, righteous judge to judge the earth. And we're all accountable to him. And so he called them into this person, Jesus, who will also be our judge, is also the one who is our justifier. And therefore, he said, through the resurrection from the dead, Jesus delivers us from the power of sin and death. That's the gospel. It's, it's rooted in this whole picture of as God as creator, God as sustainer of all. God is Lord of all. God is Father of all. And God is judge of all. All, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul called them away. He called them to repentance, which means a turning away from your way, from your gods, to turn to the one true God through Jesus Christ. He called them away from following their path of their own imagination and what their hands have formed to really come to basis with the God who had formed them and to trust in the person, the work of Jesus. What was their response? Well, let's take a look. In verse 32, it says, Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, remember, the Epicureans didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. This is all we got, folks. Party hard. This is all we got. Some mocked. So when the gospel is presented, even in its fullness, some will mock. Happens still today. Sometimes I'm presenting the gospel here and someone just goes, I've heard that in here. But most times I hear it is when I'm outside of here sharing it with someone. No, no way. I don't want that. That's craziness, some people will say. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Someone will go, wow, that's an interesting thought. I'd like to hear more. Those are the seekers. Typical person hears the gospel over 20 times before before they get it, it seems. 
And I've had people tell me, Joe, I've heard the gospel so many times here at FBC. But I don't know. It was around the 30th time. It was like the light came on. You know what I believe that? It's the Holy Spirit opening the hearts and the eyes of people. And then they trust Christ. What do you do when someone says, I'd like to hear more about it? Yes, share more, right? You don't go now or never. You know, make your plan today or we're, we're done. No, that's treating people like an, an object, like a project. And you got to love people no matter where they're at. And then, so Paul went out from their midst. And look at that verse 34. It says, but some men joined him and believed. That's another thing that happens when the gospel shared. People believe it. People trust. And there it lists them. And what do you do with those people? Well, you make them disciples. The life of Paul, you just see the people who, who he discipled and, and built up different leaders and different followers of Christ. You build into them and you love them and you teach them more. I've, I've studied these five aspects about who God is. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the Lord of all. He's the father of all. He's the judge of all. I've studied them. I've been in the church a long time and it never gets old. Never gets old. Because that's the fullness of the gospel. That's the fullness in your lives. Number one, have you responded to the gospel? Has there been a time where the gospel made sense to you? You realize it's not just a cute story that makes sense in a Sunday school room for fifth, fifth graders. It's something that applies to you. Only Jesus can live a perfect life for you. Only Jesus can die completely on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. Only Jesus rose from the dead to set you free from the power of sin. Only Jesus restores you to the God who is the creator of all, the sustainer of all, the Lord of all, the father of all, the judge of all. Only Jesus can do that. And you want to turn from all those other things, all your other ways, all your other thoughts to really go all in with Jesus and trust him. If that's you, welcome to the family. Welcome to a time where you turn from your sin to trust the only one who can save you. Others of you are seeking. Keep seeking. So many people walk away from the church. I meet many of you who, this is your story. You went to church as a kid, but when you got the car keys, you never went back. And so your your faith has not stopped it's not grown at all since 16. And so you've gone to college, which is our Areopagus, and uh, someone who's 50 years old, who's a PhD in philosophy, tears you apart. Because what 16-year-old can defend their faith? Very few. Even in the movies, folks. Very few can defend their faith when you haven't grown in that faith. Well, So here you are in your 20s or your 30s. Seek. Seek. Your faith has to grow. Your faith has to develop. It has to be the faith of a 22-year-old, or however old you are, to deal with the realities of your life because this, the fullness of the gospel reaches down into every stage of your life and says, the one who formed you is with you. The one who has sustained you in the past will sustain you now. The one who really has authority in your life is the one you need to be following. He's the Lord of all. It applies to whatever age we're at, but we got to keep seeking, keep seeking, keep coming. As an adult, keep seeking. And the God who may have shown himself to you when you were young will show the fullness of who he is when you're an adult. And if you've just met Jesus, 
continue to grow and develop in the fullness of the gospel. This is the gospel in Athens. Amongst all the other gods, this is the true God that Paul presents. Is he yours? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for showing us a picture of who you are through Paul's message to the to the people in Athens. And may we be people who see what you see, who feel what you feel, and who say what you would say in a world of other gods. Lord, I pray for the hearts of each person here. Lord, I pray that you would soften those who might be mocking you. I pray that you would uh, be found by those who seek you. And I pray that you would develop and grow and harvest a great joy and a great love and a great satisfaction for those who have chosen to follow you. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.